This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by Robert Ovitz, a lecturer in political science and public administration, who writes about the politics of the labor movement, work, and the crisis of capitalism at the turn of the 20th century. Professor Ovitz has appeared on NPR, BBC, and CNN, and his articles published internationally. He's the author of the recent book, uh, When Workers Shot Back, Class Conflict from 1877 to 1921, and editor and contributor to the 2021 publication from Pluto Press entitled Workers' Inquiry and Global Class Struggle, Strategies, Tactics, Objectives. Professor Ovitz, Robert, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, Keith. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Thanks, Robert. Uh, hey, let's start with some some personal context. How did you uh, come to the study of labor, and and who were your scholarly influences along the way? Well, I think I came to study labor um, as a as a teenager pondering. A story that my father had told me, he was uh, an immigrant to the United States. Uh, he he uh, grew up during World War II and was uh, incarcerated in a labor camp uh, by the fascists in, in Hungary, Romania. After he had um, left after World War II, he was working on ships, and he told me uh, – story about how uh, some of his fellow sailors who worked in an engine room uh, were planning on going on strike. And uh, he uh, he didn't want to go on strike with them, and uh, they beat him up. <laughs> and I always pondered – I pondered that for years. Like, why would my father not go on strike? And I never did get an answer, but uh, it got me thinking about labor very early on. And when I was in college, I attempted to form two labor unions – uh, one by myself at a food co-op that failed miserably. My my girlfriend at the time was on the board, and that kind of blew up our relationship. And uh, the second time was as a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin. I wasn't uh, I was part of a larger group, and we weren't the first ones to try. But uh, being Texas at the time uh, it was incredibly difficult, and uh, we weren't able to really get it up off the ground. So I, I kind of came to the issue of labor from my own personal experiences. And um, later on um, at that, well, while I was in college, I started reading a lot 
of Marx. And I found somebody by the name of Harry Cleaver, uh, who was in a different department and started taking his classes. And I ended up taking every one of his classes, even some of his graduate classes as an undergrad. Uh, and I studied with him also in grad school, although I was in, in a different department. We're still friends, uh, but I, I really found that uh, Marx uh, gave me an analytical framework to understand the world. Uh, particularly capitalism, I should say. And it got me thinking about class conflict and class struggle as a driving force in the change of policy and law and systems of government. And uh, it made a, made a very strong impact on me. Um, and so that was really kind of the, the genesis of how I came to uh, studying labor. Did, did that change your uh, final PhD focus in the end? <laughs> Uh, it didn't change it because when I when I decided to stay on at the University of Texas at Austin, I ended up – I like to say I was institutionalized there for 11 years. I did my undergrad, my master's, and my PhD there. And uh, when I went to grad school, I already knew what I wanted to do, and I, I wrote both my master's thesis and my dissertation about the reorganization of higher education into a corporation, to a profit-making business. And I used the University of Texas, which was probably – a suicide pact for my academic career as my case study. And and so um, I focused on how student movements in the 60s through the 80s had led to a reorganization of higher education. In your latest book, you, you talk about organizing as part of the California, I guess it's with the CFA, you're, you're part of that group. So that all comes uh, is a natural progression for you, really. Yes. Yes, that's that's well said. Yeah, it's a it's a natural progression. And um, I took a break from academia after I got my Ph.D. I moved to the Netherlands and I lived there for six years and tried to become a, a, a sound artist and a performing musician. And um, I started working for NGOs. And so when I came back to the United States, I thought, what can I do? And one of the things I started doing was teaching. Uh, I'm essentially a full time adjunct. And I realized oh my God, I've come full circle. I was writing about the neoliberal restructuring of higher education in grad school, and now I'm living it as, uh, <laughs> as one of the 70 plus percent faculty are not on the tenure track. Uh, and that's not an easy track, as you say. And, and I've, I've seen how uh, even, who is it? I guess Patrick Cunningham. Well, there's a few people actually who use the word precarious Yes. And and so it's an existence. And and I saw also in your first book, you wrote in your introduction about that, that it's, it's hard to, to really do the kind of research and have the kind of focus that you want and need to bring to bear. Uh, and then at the same time, be juggling a, a bunch of classes running from one campus to another. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. Uh, I, I did have a, a, a lengthy passage in uh, my introduction and in my first book explaining why it took me so long to write my first book. Um, in addition to trying to figure out what I wanted to write a book about, I also discovered teaching in academia. I was at community colleges for the most part, and the library resources there are in some ways worse than in a high school. And the databases aren't very aren't very broad, and so I couldn't really do a lot of research. And it wasn't until I got hired by James Martell at San Francisco State that I first really had access to a university research library and research librarians 
who could help me track down obscure books and documents and a whole world had reopened for me and um it made a huge difference you know in addition to teaching at two three four campuses at a time sometimes six seven eight classes at a time uh it makes uh the production of of academic knowledge very very difficult and so it's no accident that many faculty today like myself do not even publish or go to conferences academic conferences or involved in journals or writing or appearing in the media because we're too busy teaching multiple places. Uh, thanks for, for sharing that. Well, let's um, work back to that uh, because you cover your experiences in uh, chapter four. I think it is um, about uh, basically credible strike threats when you were uh, on the staff there uh, at San Jose, or I guess you still are uh, at San yes. Jose State. But I wanted to, before we get there, you, when Workers Shot Back was your was your, was the first book, Class Conflict from 1877 to 1921. Uh, uh, Brill published it in 2018, uh, hardback, and then came out uh, in paperback uh, with uh, Haymarket Books uh, the following year. Um, now that's part of the historical materialism uh, book series, and you you mentioned your interest uh, in Marx. Can you tell us about the series and and the significance of of the publisher's name? Sure. Uh, well, the historical materialism series is connected to the historical materialism conference, which really began in London at uh, SOAS in in. Uh, one of the predominant universities there. And it's now have some spinoffs before the pandemic. I think it was in three or four other countries. So it's a, it's a conference that has many different elements, different approaches to Marxism. And they have, along with the conference, they have a journal by the same name, also published by Brill, and they have the book series. And the book series has been going on, I think, almost two decades. I may be wrong about that. And they have dozens and dozens and dozens of books. Um, I think they put out probably about a dozen a year. Uh, as part of publishing with them, uh, your book is in hardback, published by Brill, very, very expensive academic publisher, great publisher. It's been around for like 500 years or something like that in the Netherlands. And then after a year, Haymarket republishes it exactly the same way. So you know they're always looking for people who want to publish their first book or their 20th book uh, if it's related to Marxism uh, and just a fantastic group to sure. work with. What, was there a connection with Brill and you, you being in the Netherlands? Uh, at no, point? no, actually I had never heard of Brill until I moved back to the United States and it's kind of funny, but I actually worked for a competitor while I lived in the Netherlands as a freelance editor. Uh, I worked for Kluwer for their law book. Mm -hmm. Uh, division. So it was kind of ironic, but sure. no, I wasn't aware of them then. Um, well, speaking, I guess uh, this, uh, the idea with the book series, or I guess we could stay with that for a second. Your, your latest book, uh, Workers Inquiry, is, is uh, also part of a series, uh, Wildcat, uh, Workers Movements and Global Capitalism. Can you tell listeners a bit about the series and the editors? Uh, Pluto Books figures uh, prominently across uh, the reference sections, I noticed, um, they're not a nonprofit organization. Hey, what, what's their mission? 
I'm new to Pluto. I've read some of their books over the decades, but uh, Pluto came out of um, the militant movements of the of the um, of the '60s, um, and um, I can't speak to the internal organization or their mission. Uh, but sure. the it's a great publisher that's uh, been putting out just amazing books that I've you know come across going back to being an undergrad, uh, you know, scouring the library shelves. Um, but they they have been involved in publishing books dealing with almost any uh, social movement, militant movement, workers' movement over the last half century. Uh, they just turned 50, I think, last year. And so I have been friends with Emmanuel Ness, uh, who uh, is uh, a well-known labor, militant labor scholar, uh, most recently uh, did a, a pretty influential book uh, called uh, Choke Points with Jake Wilson. Uh, and about the global supply chain and, and worker organizing. And uh, he had asked me to uh, to guest edit an issue of a journal that he had. It's called the Journal of Labor and Society, which I'm now involved in as the book review editor. And uh, I did this. I curated a series of articles about glo- uh, global workers' movements. And he said, hey, why don't you put it together as a book proposal? And pitch it to me because I edit uh, the Wildcat series for Pluto. And so he showed me how to do a book proposal and uh, has really kind of taken me under his wing. And he got Pluto to approve it. And um, it came out last October. Wow, that's uh, great. Thanks for for sharing that. Uh, Before we dive into the books, I wanted to ask you, um, you, you wrote an article um, a few months back, uh, published in the San Jose Mercury News uh, that was titled America's First Attempted Coup <laughs> Also Tracks to January 6th or to Jan 6th. It was published just a month after what George Packer described in The Atlantic as, as a mob of freedom-loving Americans taking back their constitutional rights by shitting on the floors of Congress and hunting <laughs> down elected representatives. Can, can you tell us about the Newberg conspiracy, uh, America's yeah. first attempted coup in 1783 and how you described it? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me about that, Keith. Uh, it's actually going to be part of my next book with Pluto that I'm actually writing right now, uh, which is a class analysis of the U.S. Constitution. It's going to be a smaller book, much smaller, uh, and it'll be kind of an introduction for people who want to understand uh the kind of things that George Packer's talking about. Why is the United States on such a rapid decline? Why can't we address any fundamental pressing problems? For example, the Senate couldn't pass an election reform bill yesterday because of of what is being called a filibuster, although I don't actually think anybody filibustered. Uh, and so uh, as part of my research, uh, I came across another January 6th at the end of the American Revolution – the Congress, the Confederate Congress under the Articles of Confederation, uh, and the states had run out of money. And there had been an effort to uh, – they couldn't pay the soldiers anymore, and there had been an effort of some of the officers as well as some of the enlisted men uh, to uh, to cut a deal where they wouldn't get paid now, but they'd get a lifetime pension. They're at uh, While they were at uh, Newburgh, New York, kind of waiting for what – you know whether they would go home or they would have to stay uh, ready for whatever was next. Uh, there was a plot uh, that was hatched really by Alexander Hamilton 
and Knox and Governor Morris and, uh, and James Madison and uh, to try to use the uh, dissatisfaction and upheaval of the soldiers not getting paid uh, to try to encourage them to essentially carry out an assault on Congress and to uh, at least to threaten Congress with, with an assault uh, in order to force the Congress to pass funding to pay the officers for their lifetime pensions. It never came to that. There was some rumbling among the officers. There was a letter that went around that threatened to do something vague like that. And then Washington got wind of it. And to his credit, uh, he called the meeting on the day that the, uh, the anonymous flyer had told everybody to gather together, uh, presumably to come together in a forced march on the Congress, which is far away, but nonetheless. And uh, Washington kind of got the upper hand. This is where most historians leave out the rest of the story, but this is where uh, Washington famously got up in front of his soldiers and uh, pulled out, presumed to have pulled out a letter from his jacket, and he couldn't read it. So he said, you know, I'm sorry, the, the years of war have been long and hard on my eyes, and he pulls out his spectacles and puts them on and reads this letter asking the soldiers to have faith in Congress. And then famously, you know, according to the propaganda, the soldiers cried and and that was the end of the coup attempt. Well, uh, months later, Hamilton writes uh, several letters to Washington where he pretty much bears all and admits that he was involved in this plot. Um, and so I, I called that the first January 6th, although it never went as far as uh, what actually happened this year. There was an attempt to try to do an end around um, and uh, try to install presumably Washington, although he didn't go along with it as a military dictator. Yeah, well, you end the piece by basically saying that, uh, hey, look, at the seditious plotters both inside and outside of government are not punished. They will live to try again. This is a lesson we must learn from our own January 6th uh, coup attempt. Uh, knowing what you know now, I mean, uh, and I'm referring to how the Senate Republicans blocked the creation of a independent probe and, and now mm -hmm. House Speaker Pelosi's indication that she might create a new committee to investigate uh, this uh, insurrection. Hey, what are your thoughts about the utility of, of this kind of partisanship? Well, I think we live in a dangerous time. Um, we just had a president who, with what he did in the last few months in, in office, you know, was preceded by four years and previously as a candidate several times. Uh, where he was essentially praising dictators and uh, shunting uh, traditional allies. Uh, we live in a very dangerous time. Uh, there are a lot of indicators for that. I think the George Packard piece and and the Davis uh, piece in the Rolling Stone make it very clear that America is in a rapid decline. And when a country's uh, in such a long decline, uh, there are always interest groups that are looking to kind of pin responsibility on one group or another. And we've seen that, for example, with the demonization and incarceration of immigrants. I mean, we essentially we have a series of concentration camps for immigrants, which is horrifying, um, of uh, pinning it on uh, people of color, uh, on service workers, you know, with recent you know, uh, claims by Democrats and Republicans that, you know, unemployment benefits are too generous and people are too lazy to work for poverty level wages. Um, so, you know, and the examples are 
on and on. Our system essentially is dysfunctional and broken because that's the way the framers designed it. They designed it to be an anti-democratic system that allows a small minority, numerical minority, not a racial or ethnic minority, to block change that they don't want. Um, and now we're living the circumstances of it two centuries plus later where no change is possible. And people across the country are dissatisfied with the system. And many people are susceptible to blaming one another um, and thus being susceptible to fascist ideas. And so the number of neo-fascists and fascist groups in America are on a rapid rise. Uh, you know, apparently ammunition is flying off the shelves Gun sales are flying off the shelves. Mass shootings are escalating as fast as the temperature is rising on our planet. I, I think we're in a very dangerous time, as dangerous as um, when the uh, Newber conspiracy was being hatched. Thanks, Robert. Uh, well, speaking of partisanship uh, from, a, from a different perspective, uh, you point out uh, in the introduction of your first book, uh, and again, when workers shot back, class conflict from 1877 to 1921, although it's a much studied period of violent class conflict, it's actually not well known by many people and, and usually described from a moralizing or documenting perspective, and less so on, on situating the self-organization of workers um, within class struggle and, and existing uh, class composition. Um, you, you divide the book into three three main parts. Uh, part one covers the 1877 railroad strike. Uh, part two on the 1894 railroad strike. And uh, finally, part three is titled more broadly, The Revolt of the Rank and File. Um, the first two parts cover over half the book. And though they're similarly structured around your class focus, for, for instance, uh, part one includes working class recomposition in the 1877 strike in chapter two and chapter three about capital's new composition. And then you reapply this lens in the 1894 strike in chapters five and six. Can, can you unpack the meaning and the significance of class composition and recomposition in terms of their explanatory power in these violent episodes of, of U.S. labor history. Yeah, sure. And, you know, the, the reason why I decided to write that book was for the same reason of what you just asked me with the previous question is, you know, what is the situation that we face today? We seem to be at a, at a position where there's intense class conflict uh, that's bubbling just below the surface. Uh, wealth inequality is massive. Uh, corporations have grown gargantuan. Um, and much of the population is working too much for too little. Uh, things are broken down, and it doesn't seem that normal politics works anymore. I, uh, I've been thinking this for quite a while, and a, a little over a decade ago, I was teaching a class on uh, terrorism, the politics of terrorism. And I started thinking about uh, – I started coming across this strike that happened in 1877 – and I started reading everything I could find about it, and I realized that uh, what we call uh, terrorism today is not a new phenomenon. In fact, the class conflicts that emerged during what is called the Gilded Era uh, was also denounced as terrorism. I wanted to find out why and what kind of lessons can we learn 
from that period of the beginnings of industrialization in the United States and the consolidation of a of truly uh, wealthy elite um, and the shift from agriculture to industry and from a rural population to an urban population, what are the lessons today? Because I wanted to see how does change get made when the system seems locked and changes, even basic, modest reform is impossible. What can make change possible? And what I discovered was the biggest period that we refer to as a period of change, the New Deal period, was not preceded just by the Depression and the, the strikes in the early 30s, but was actually preceded by the previous six decades of class conflict. And the 1877 strike was the period where I wanted to start, and I wanted to end just after World War I, because I wanted to demonstrate that the greatest change happens not before class conflict breaks out. It doesn't facilitate class conflict, but it actually does the opposite. It manages it. It controls it. It disciplines it. I think reform is only possible when class conflict erupts, and the response is reformers that are working inside the system then translate what's happening outside in the streets and on the shop floor into reforms that they otherwise can't get done. And so I I needed to figure out a way to explain that. I'm I'm not a historian, so this book is, even though it's 600 pages long, not to scare people away, but um, I didn't want to – I wasn't breaking new historical ground, but I wanted to do an analysis of why did these strikes happen, first of all? Why were they so why were they characterized by so much violence? And then how did they actually proceed change? And so I used the theoretical constructs that I learned from Harry Cleaver, who I told told you about earlier, mm-hmm. and Marx. And uh, I used what I call class composition theory. Class composition theory essentially is a three-stage process for understanding how change occurs. So First is understanding that employers, what I call capital, responds to previous waves of class conflict by reorganizing itself. It restructures what I call the technical composition. So it reorganizes production by introducing new technology, new division of labor, uh, rationalizes labor, it outsources, it automates, and so forth, right? It eliminates certain kinds of employment and creates new kinds of employment. So workers who had been successful in the previous wave of struggle now find themselves uh, decomposed. They find that their previous power has been essentially suppressed by this new strategy of capital, of managing the capitalist economy, managing even at the firm level. So how do these workers figure that out? They have to study the technical composition of capital by using what I call workers' inquiry. They have to understand work and how work is organized and how they are fragmented and isolated from one another. And by understanding that, they can then go into the third step, which is to recompose their power to respond to and take the offensive, if you will, uh, to to counter uh, the exploitation and, and oppression that exists in the workplace and in capitalist society as a whole. So it's, I think of it as a three-step dance. It's kind of like a, a spiral. So when capital changes its technical composition, workers' power is decomposed. When the workers recompose their power, 
capital responds by introducing a new technical composition. So if, if, if any of you have uh, read Marx, you know that the three volumes of capital are essentially a snapshot. This is capitalism in the, in the middle of the 1800s as he studied it in England. Right. So that his his book is essentially a snapshot of the class composition process. So what I did was I looked at these big events over this five decade period, and I wanted to see first, why did workers end up resorting to armed and violent forms of of tactics? What led them to escalate their tactics from peaceful petitions and grievances to, in some cases, armed militias of workers uh, engaged in self-defense, and then how the employers responded and so forth. And then how did that also contribute to changes, a change in the technical composition of capital? How was capitalism reorganized to respond to that? And then how did workers respond uh, in kind? And then also how did the state change its involvement in the capitalist economy. And one of the things that we that I found in this time period is that uh, the idea of state intervention in the capitalist economy really begins at this time period. And uh, just to kind of wrap up this, uh, my answer to your current question is, this is the period when the populists and the progressives come to form to, to prominence. So uh, you get these reformers who start looking at the class conflict and say, here's some reforms that we could introduce change the way that the economy operates by intervening and then bring about these changes in reforms. So the book is kind of lengthy because I I think that there's a lot going on that preceded the New Deal that actually kind of laid the groundwork for what uh, we celebrate uh, during the Great Depression. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Clearly, uh, the, the book, it, it, all 600 plus pages of it, uh, yeah, not a, not a short read. Um, but but a good read. And um, it's it's not an endorsement of violence or simply just another description uh, with attribution um, to psychological or theological or ideological causes. Hey, do you think as you overlaid your, in, in a sense, class composition theory on on that period, do, do you feel like um, when we talk about the terminology um, like labor and capital, do, do we need to redefine those things? Is, is that helpful? Well, I, I'm glad that you saw that continuum. So where I was looking at, at a historical period in the United States to see how change occurs and how conflict uh, follows this kind of tactical trajectory uh, and then the state and capital respond – I then wanted, I then shifted and wanted to look at it today globally. My answer to you is no, we really don't. Because fundamentally, even though the types of work change, uh, the tasks that we do, um, the way that corporations operate, the relationship between what we call the private sector and the public sector, although I think they're not 
really as separate as we talk about them. I think all of that still fundamentally operates the same. Uh, the details are different. The system is still pretty much the same. Sure. So context, uh, again, uh, is, is, is everything. In, in the conclusion, you quote from the, the late political sociologist uh, Barrington Moore Jr.'s article, uh, Thoughts on Violence and Democracy, and, and I quote, it's untrue that violence settles nothing. It would be closer to the mark to assert that violence has settled all historical issues so far, and most of them in the wrong way. Yeah. As, as you know, one of Moore's graduate students was Charles Tilley, uh, who figures prominently uh, in your book's bi uh, bibliography. You, you utilize Tilley's uh, facilitation curve, uh, which you refer to as IOMO in, in chapters two and seven, and in the lead up uh, to the conclusion uh, when writing about the West Virginia Mine War and the Redneck Army in chapter 10, can you, can you tell us uh, about the significance of scholars like Moore and Tilly and, and what IMO, IOMO stands for and, and why it's relevant to your analysis? Tilly is really an in, incredible sociologist. He, he was not a Marxist, but he understood class conflict in a, in a really interesting way. Um, he was the, the originator of what is still uh, a dominant school of sociological thought called resource mobilization theory. And what Tilly did was he studied revolutions, particularly the French Revolution. And he wanted and he also studied uh, various uh, uh, the Paris communes and, and various other periods of, of turmoil in French uh, recent French history. And he wanted to try to understand uh, the role of violence and conflict in a capitalist society. And uh, he developed essentially um, what I would say is a, how could I put it, a, a, a kind of coda for how to understand when social movements uh, take up uh, violence as a tactic. Uh, he talked about it as a tactical repertoire. And I was uh, I have several different objectives with that first book, and I talked about uh, using class composition theory and workers' inquiry and understanding how reform happens. But the third objective of the book is to try to understand when uh, struggles become violent. How how does violence enter in as a tactic? Now we've made a lot of mistakes in understanding political violence in the last few decades particularly after 9-11, this whole kind of cottage, global cottage industry of consultants and theorists and academics, uh, military thinkers, have uh, mistakenly confused uh, violence as an objective or even as a, a morality or a philosophy or even a theology. What they've forgotten is the lesson that Tilly taught us, and that is that violence is a tactic. And movements do not begin with violence. They actually end with violence. Uh, they either end because they're repressed uh, or they destroy themselves or they de-escalate and become political parties like the FARC in Colombia, for example. Um, and so what Tilly did was he identified uh, what he calls uh, Interests Organization Mobilization Opportunity, IOMO. And uh, he created this kind of logical uh, coda by which we can understand how movements go through their repertoire 
and they try different tactics until some work. Um, and the response can be that they uh, are repressed or they uh, win some of their concessions. So they either disappear or they de-escalate or they become institutionalized or they fail and they develop new allies and they become stronger. And so they escalate their tactics. And, um, and at every point along the way, these different outcomes can occur. Um, and sometimes they even become governments like Israel. We shouldn't forget that um, it was terrorist groups uh, that became the first government in Israel. In fact, I have some relatives who are now um, deceased that were part of some of these armed groups uh, in Israel. And uh, so I have this whole settler colonial uh, past connected to my own family. And, and so Tilly, in some ways, um, I, I, I got some questions from some, some folks who read my book who just didn't understand, how can you combine Tilly with Marxism? And I think Tilly has a lot to teach us about understanding tactics and strategies. And for any social movement, I really think the fundamental factors are tactics, strategies, and objectives. And uh, Tilly is worth paying a lot of attention to because that was really his life's work, is understanding uh, at least tactics and strategies. Well, thanks for for handling that mouthful of a of a question in the first place. Uh, strategies, tactics, and objectives. It it seems fair now uh, to say that the first book uh, laid the theoretical foundations for your more practical application of theory. In the second book, uh, where you are both editor and contributor, uh, your 2021 publication, as we said, from uh, Pluto Press. Uh, workers' Inquiry and Global Class Struggle, Strategies, Tactics, Objectives. The focus is on the analysis of class composition, as we've been talking about. And even though not all the studies take the same approach, the link is this workers' inquiry methodology. Could, can you tell us a little more, hey, what is a workers' inquiry? Can you explain some of the background and, and some of the different approaches? Yeah, so the way to think about a worker's inquiry is that it's the methodology for understanding the class composition. So class composition is the theory, and a worker's inquiry is the methodology. So a worker's inquiry is essentially the method by which uh, workers study the organization of work and try to understand the situation that they find themselves at work. How is work organized? Who's doing what? Uh, how are workers fragmented and put into a hierarchy? Uh, what are the new management strategies that have been introduced? Um, how is technology introduced into the workplace? What, uh, what were previous uh, means by which workers organized? Uh, understanding the different subgroups among workers based on race and gender and ethnicity, um, different uh, workers who are connected through family relations or shared language or uh, origin, uh, if they're immigrants. Um, and so an inquiry is really that entire study of that group of workers, perhaps in a single workplace or across the entire firm or even a whole sector, to try to understand how workers are currently organized at work so that they can understand the current technical composition, how is work organized and imposed on them so they can develop tactics and strategies to uh, organize themselves and uh, realize their objectives, whatever those might be. And so 
uh, for this book, which grew out of that, the issue of the Journal of Labor and Society, I uh, recruited a few other people to contribute uh, to, uh, to begin to do what uh, Ed Emery, British independent scholar, called for in the 1990s. He called for no, no politics without inquiry. And he said, before we can really struggle, we really have to understand how capital is organized and how workers are disorganized. And he wasn't the first one. Uh, this, uh, this methodology actually was the last thing that Marx actually wrote about. Uh, at the end of his life, he wrote a, a survey of 100 questions for French workers, and he published it in a French newspaper. And he asked many of these kinds of questions. He also asked about, you know, what's the quality of your housing and how many people are in your family. And right. So a lot of demographic questions. And he called it a workers inquiry. And he asked workers to answer the questions and mail them to him. And sadly, uh, he never received a response. But about, about six decades later, um, independently, a group of worker militants in France and another group didn't know each other existed in Italy uh, had taken up Marx's method of the workers' inquiry. And in their own workplaces and collaborating with factory workers, and then soon to be joined a little bit later by some Americans around CLR James and uh, Raya Dunevskaya uh, and others in their group, they, uh, they did inquiries to further the struggles of those workers uh, in those industries. And uh, it was forgotten for a few decades. It kind of passed away uh, out of attention until the 90s when a German group uh, did an inquiry into call centers um, and they effectively abandoned their project when they couldn't find any examples of workers struggling. Uh, but they left behind an incredible treasure of an inquiry. And that was discovered, I think, about five or six years ago by a group that still exists called Notes from Below. And they have a really rich website. I, I co-edited a few issues of their online magazine with, with them a few years back. And uh, they kind of re-energized it and brought Workers' Inquiry back into prominence. And I remember uh, first kind of tripping on to uh, work, uh, Notes from Below's website and discovered, oh, my God, I'm not the only one who's working with class composition theory and workers' inquiry. And, uh, and so that's kind of the genealogy of uh, where it came from, from the pen of yeah. Marx and the, and the mind of Marx. Yeah, interesting. Nice, uh, nice connections. Uh, there and uh, and this idea of it being kind of resuscitated. You um, you wrote a really thorough uh, overview uh, as as an introduction, and you divide uh, this book into three parts as well. And and it's really roughly into industry sectors that that are spread out uh, geographically. Uh, part one uh, is concerning the transport and logistics uh, with worker inquiries from Argentina, Turkey, and Italy. Um, part two, you move on to uh, education and, then, as you mentioned, uh, call centers, uh, the so-called platform work and gamers with uh, samples from or research from the U.S., uh, Mexico, and, and the U.K., 
And then part three is about manufacturing and mining, uh, more more traditional sector uh, from China, uh, South Africa, and and India. In chapter four, though, uh, and I mentioned this a little while ago, uh, you wrote about credible strike threats uh, based on your own experience with the California State uh, University system. There's a lot going on there, and I think there's some linkage with the call center situation where kind of an, an apathy that that you couldn't, there wasn't really a struggle going on. So uh, that's part of the issue, isn't it? Where uh, people disagree as to what's actually happening on the ground. Are, are we resisting something or are we not? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And, and it's, it's one of the motivations for putting this book together is when we look around, we get the sense that things are getting worse. Uh, work is getting worse pay is continuing to be extremely low, and um, maybe 40% of the U.S. labor force is precarious, part-time, contingent, without any long-term expectations of employment, uh, unbenefited. And yet, below the surface, there is a lot of class conflict going on, not just in the United States, but in many parts of the world. I Just in the last few months, we've seen general strikes in uh, Colombia, um, in India, the world's largest general strike uh, in history, the largest number of people, I estimate 100 million people went on strike. But we also see everyday small-scale struggles of uh, what I call uh, workers marching on the boss with a complaint. You know, we saw the failure to organize a union in Alabama, a poorly organized unionization effort. Um, but on the same day, that their uh, failed vote was announced, workers in a Chicago Amazon warehouse walked out in a wildcat strike. Payday report uh, documented in the first few months of the pandemic in the United States that there were about 600, 600 wildcat strikes, whereas the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I haven't looked precisely, but I would say has not has said there haven't even been 600 strikes in the last two decades. I would make that about an estimate. So, are workers organizing or are they just letting the hammer fall on them and letting it fall where it may? And what I, what I found in uh, these different contributions, which you laid out very nicely around the world, is that uh, whether workers have an official union or not, they're still attempting to organize to improve their lives, uh, to get control over their work uh, and to improve their communities. Um, and in some cases, like the chapter in the truck drivers in Argentina, uh, they've actually taken over their union and uh, democratized it and used it to find the weaknesses in the trucking sector so they could apply pressure there to be more successful in their organizing efforts. Um, so I think the short of it is, is that there's an abundance of class conflict, of class struggle going on around the world. It's just that we tend to we tend to read reports that nothing's happening and things just keep getting worse. And I actually, um, you know, to kind of bring it back to the beginning of our conversation, I actually decided that this is going to be where I'm going to put my focus because I uh, I'm looking at worker struggles because I really think that uh, because we live in a global capitalist system, in order to solve the many threats to the survival of humanity and the many other species that we're going to take down with us, we really have to change our economic system. And the only way to really change it is to bring that system to a halt, 
And the only people who can do that are the 95% of us who are working for a wage or for a salary. And, and so to the kind of the short answer to your question is, um, I think I see struggle happening all over the place. With regard to what happened with Amazon uh, in Bessemer, what's the takeaway there for people looking at, at that kind of activism and saying, well, gee, see, it, it really doesn't amount to much because you can't get people uh, worked up to actually you know, make a difference. Uh, and yet you point out almost simultaneously Chicago's erupting. Yes. Um, well, I think Bessemer is a great example of what's wrong with the labor movement. And, um, and this kind of ties in with uh, my chapter on my own union. Um, but if, if we look at a, another book in the Wildcat, the Pluto Wildcat series by uh, Wilson and Reese called The Costs of Free Shipping, they look at the global struggles, social movement and labor struggles to contest Amazon's growing power around the world. And what they show us in the book is that there's a different kind of labor organizing that's going on in Amazon that is much more effective than the the now, I would say, futile uh, method of using labor law to try to organize the workplaces, which is what the warehouse workers union attempted to do in Bessemer. Essentially what that campaign in Bessemer was, was not really a union organizing effort. It was a representational effort. Uh, they needed to win a majority vote in order for the warehouse uh, union to represent the workers in that workplace. And the reason why it failed so badly was they didn't really organize the workers. Uh, they tried to get workers to sign cards first to call for an election, and you only need a minority of workers to do that, and then uh, to get a majority uh, to vote in an election. And, of course, you're going up against the world's biggest corporation, and they don't want a union, even in a single warehouse. So uh, they went into that fight essentially with uh, their hands tied behind their back, and in some ways consciously so because they knew they were going up against the world's most powerful corporation. But yet workers are still finding ways to self-organize. Um, you know, right now I'm in touch with a network of Amazon workers um, who uh, joined uh, one of our uh, Pluto Wildcat series, How We Organize uh, webinars uh, back last fall. Uh, we had Amazon workers from five countries all talking about the tactics and strategies they're using to self-organize. And so I think the takeaway lesson really uh, for, for those who are interested in these issues is a union is not the institution. A union can be found anywhere where a group of workers are cooperating with each other to try to make uh, their working conditions and lives better. That's what a union is. And I, I really hope to recapture the original meaning of union which is exactly that, a group of workers who are organizing with each other. A union is not just an institution that has dues-paying members and has a contract. Is that, was that your finding as well with regard to California Faculty Association and back in, two, what was it, 2012, 16. I think, to 2016. Okay. Yeah, there was a previous strike. There was a strike um, a few years earlier. Um, it's not exactly the same thing uh, with that. Uh, what I was trying to do was look at another way that I think we're starting to see class conflict emerging in the United States and becoming more prevalent, and that is in the form of threatening to strike. 
So mm. uh, workers who have a contract that's expiring or workers who um, have demands that are being ignored will make a threat to strike if they're not being heard and they don't get some concessions. And it happens in different ways. And uh, I got a small research grant. Um, and with a research assistant, we uh, tried to count how many strike threats had there been over a five-year period. And we found that the number of strike threats that didn't result in a strike because uh, they were settled or they gave up and decided not to strike or whatever reason, um, over uh, 2012 to 16 uh, was about 37% higher than the number of actual strikes counted by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And twice as many workers were involved in collective action of preparing for a strike threat. And because my union, I was involved in um, organizing for our called strike that didn't happen. So it became a strike threat that was settled. I wanted to try to understand uh, how, how does a strike threat prove that it's credible? And so I looked at our own strike threat and I found that it wasn't very credible and and I wasn't surprised because what we got out of the strike threat, which we called off about a day or so before we were supposed to strike, wasn't very impressive. Trying to put that together with collective bargaining agreements and say not necessarily the futility of labor law, but that, that, over, that overstates it. Your, your point there is you, you've got a union. It's, it's not your point about people organizing with or without the organizational structure of a union, th that's kind of a separate issue from established unions that say are are more responsive. But but I I was also thought there was a bit of tension there with regard to union was it like union contractism or union contracts and CBAs and yes. So one of the one of the reasons for I think that's a, a great point. One of the reasons that we've seen a decline in the number of union members in the United States and many countries around the world, I think China's the one exception because there's only one union and you know most workers are in it if you know the state and the employer want them in it. And then the decline in the number of strikes and strike-related activities is not just the way that the BLS mismeasures that, but it really has to do with changes in labor law. So during the Great Depression, one of the laws that was passed as part of the New Deal was called the Wagner Act. And while the Wagner Act had is both something that we admire, but we also despise. It was the first legal protection for workers to form a union and to bargain and to strike. And it obligated employers to meet and negotiate with their workers. However, over the last, uh, where are we now, about nine decades, uh, labor law has been increasingly transformed into, um, I call it a harness on workers organizing. The failure in Bessemer is a failure of thinking. The warehouse union went into that thinking, we want to organize workers in Amazon, and we're going to use the rules of labor law to do it. Well, those that law is really stacked against workers. And so it's almost impossible today to actually form a union that the employer is forced to recognize. 
And if they do recognize them, it can take several years before a contract is negotiated. But even if a contract, let's say in those rare cases where a new contract is negotiated for the first time, the contract itself then becomes a break on workers organizing for various reasons. First, it's a legally binding contract. Workers can't take certain kinds of collective action until the contract expires if they're under federal labor law. If they're under state labor law and there are public employees in, in their state, there are all kinds of limits and restrictions on uh, what they can bargain over and then also when or, whether or not they can even strike. Also, contracts can have all kinds of limits. For example, I've taught at a community college where our contract prohibited us from striking. Um, in other words, we waived the most powerful tool that we have in order to get that contract. And it wasn't a very well-paying community college, I should say. So it wasn't a great contract. So there are all kinds of legal and contractual limitations on the ability of workers to organize, even when they have a contract. But there's another level to it, too, is that the union then becomes an institution that exists for the purpose of collecting dues and negotiating the contract. And that's what I call contract unionism. I borrow this term from Manny Ness. And that's where unions exist primarily to negotiate a contract. So over the last 50 years, many unions have forgotten how to organize because they're so focused on the legal aspect of being a union, which is filing and, uh, and uh, protecting workers in the grievance process and in negotiating contracts that they've forgotten that workers have power by being organized. And so the union movement has declined dramatically. And even where workers are organized, they often have to make terrible concessions in order to keep their jobs and renew their contract. And we are seeing some long strikes going on in the United States right now. Uh, Alabama miners, uh, hospital workers in Pennsylvania have been out on strike for months uh, because the employer can just say, hey, we're, we're not going to negotiate a new contract with you. Take it or leave it. And uh, that's the only time when you can actually strike is when um, essentially both parties can't come to an agreement. Then under federal labor law and most state labor law, that's when you can actually strike. And sometimes that's a year or two after your contract expires. So I'm sorry about the long explanation, but the reality of it is, is that workers who organize using labor law are finding that they're losing the power that they have in the workplace. Would you still agree, though, that the power of the working class lies in their ability to withhold their labor, that, that really that, that is uh, their weapon, the, uh, in, in a sense, the strike? Ultimately, yes. And what labor law does is it makes it impossible or even illegal to actually use that weapon. So it's like if we go back to Charles Tilley and Charles Tilley's uh, tactical repertoire, when Tilley looked at workers going on strike, he saw the strike as one of the highest levels of intensity in the repertoire. It's like you go to the strike when everything else fails, right? Mm. And so the problem is now we can't even get to that tactic in the repertoire. We can do everything else short of the strike, and everything else is not sufficient. Sure, and so sure. workers find themselves uh, in uh, a worsening situation. A Columbia University law professor, Katerina Pistor, wrote a book called uh, Code of Capital. In, in it, she said, and, and I, I mentioned it just uh, as an overlap for, for those interested, that uh, realizing the centrality uh, and the power of law for coding uh, capital 
has important implications for understanding the political economy of capitalism because it shifts attention from class identity and class struggle to the question of who has access to and control over the legal code, which is, I think, what you were talking about there. I'm writing a book, my fourth book. I'm co-writing it with someone, and she told me about this book, and uh, I'm glad you brought it up. It's, It's exactly the point that I make about labor law is that employers and the state have been able to transform labor law from a shield uh, to a sword um, and use it essentially to uh, decompose the power of workers. Well, I was going to ask you what you were currently working on. I think at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned institutional law. Yeah, so I'm I'm actually, I have contracts for two two books right now. The book that I'm writing right Right. now is uh, Class Analysis of the U.S. Constitution. So I'm looking at how the Constitution was designed uh, to have um, built into it numerous areas where a numerical minority can block change from happening um, in order to dampen and put the brakes on political democracy and prevent economic democracy from happening. And then the book after that will be – I'll be co-writing it with Divya Sundar. And we're writing about non-governmental organizations and nonprofits and how uh, they've emerged, particularly in the uh, post-World War II era. Um, we're going to be looking at them globally and in the United States and essentially as a, a kind of uh, alternative institution to kind of redirect uh, and absorb a lot of the energy of social movements and worker organizing. Uh, well, look look forward to those, Robert. Hopefully – uh, you can share more of your thoughts with me on NBN in the future uh, in, in relation to those. You know, the first one the, that you mentioned, I, it made me think of um, the Howard Zinn comment mm-hmm. that political rights are meaningless without economic rights. Um, yes. And it sounds like you're going after that in, in, in a good way. Uh, as a final question for you, I've taken up a, a lot of your time. Uh, do you have any uh, reading recommendations? You've given some already. Uh, that you'd make to listeners as students of the labor movement and activism looking to complement and enhance their understanding of your books and the need for change? Yeah, so if you're looking to try to delve into the history of class conflict in the United States, I can't recommend strongly enough Jeremy Brecher's Strike, uh, which uh, I think just reached its 50th anniversary and is back in print. It's it's had several editions. Uh, you mentioned uh, Howard Zinn, People's History of the United States. I think a great place to start. And a lot of people don't realize there's a graphic novel version of it. So I think that book's like 700 pages long. And so the graphic novel version is really fun to read. And then also I would take a look at uh, some of the books coming out of the Pluto Wildcat series, you know, to, to plug that series. I, I think there's some sure. fantastic books there. Um, but I think we're, we're living in an incredible time right now of uh, just a plethora of incredible work uh, that's happening and happening in a lot of different areas around understanding capitalism. You know, I'm, I'm looking for a book right now uh, to read about climate catastrophe. And I just discovered that in the last year or two, there are several books connecting capitalism and the climate. And so I think there's a lot of really good work. We're really starting to look at this economic system. So in, in terms of also other specifics um, around global class conflict, um, I would encourage folks to take a look at 
the notes from below website. Uh, there's a lot of great issues in there. And if you're interested in uh, worker self-organizing, uh, Callum Kant's book, Riding for Deliveroo, which is a European ride hailing, uh, not ride hailing, but uh, sorry, a platform food delivery company. Uh, really great book about how these um, these food delivery workers riding bicycles organize their own autonomous union. A really great book length uh, study uh, of that. So I don't know if I, you know, if you want me to keep going. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I no, I get that, and and <laughs> sure, there's there's a lot out there, and no, I appreciate your recommendations, Robert, and and congratulations uh, on your recent books. Uh, look forward to the the new ones. Uh, but the recent books, again, uh, when workers shot back, class conflict from 1877 to 1921. Hey, it's a it's a big book, but it's it's well worth the read and 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 the look at your analysis. And then you also edit. And you're a contributor to the 2021 publication uh, from Pluto Press entitled uh, Workers' Inquiry and Global Class Struggle Strategies, Tactics, and Objectives. Um, hey, the two uh, go together nicely and maybe just uh, end it there and um, just say this. Robert, uh, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Keith, for having me. It's been great talking to you.